Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And this is part two of our uh, Elsa Lanchester podcast. Uh, we're leading up to her becoming the Bride of Frankenstein. So just to recap, she grew up uh, in very unconventional ways. Kind of radical. To, yeah, parents who were in the early 1900s already socialists, vegetarian, anti-vaccination atheists. Uh, which shaped her a lot, I think, as she grew up and became kind of an unconventional free-spirited woman. Uh, and she had started a theater and a nightclub in her early 20s. Uh, and then her acting career started to pick up, which is kind of where we are coming back in today. So in 1927, Elsa was cast in Arnold Bennett's play, Mr. Prohack. And on the first day of rehearsal, she met Charles Lawton, who would become her husband. My first impression, she writes in her book, was that he looked like a baker's assistant who just left a bakery and was all dusty with flour. Yeah, and at this point, Lawton already had some notoriety uh, as an actor, so he was kind of like the the big name coming into this production they were working on. And Lanchester's description of their early relationship really describes one of friendship. Uh, they were kind of like two misfits finding each other. Lawton, despite... Uh, being a popular actor was very lonely. He was considered ugly. Um, so he didn't, even though he was famous, he did not really have uh, a lot of romantic prospects. And Elsa was too bohemian and independent for most men. Uh, she was, you know, a little, she wasn't exactly a shrinking violet. She wasn't a demure coquette. She was a woman very much uh, in charge of herself in her own life. And it it made finding an equal partner for her a little bit tricky. And she always wasn't interested in, in long-term relationships either. Uh, Charles was from a hotel family. His parents had started out as servants, basically, and had built a fortune from nothing. Um, and really kind of at this point had owned a lot of hotels and were very well off. Uh, Elsa, ever the independent, really struggled. She had some odd feelings at the beginning of uh, their friendship and spending time together at the idea of a man, for example, paying for her meals. Uh, but she kind of negotiated with herself and was able to kind of let go of that feeling because she knew that Charles wasn't struggling financially. The two of them went on long walks together, but it wasn't what you might think of as like a typical courtship walk. Uh, they would go on these really long walks out in the country, but sometimes they didn't even talk to each other. Yeah, for two, you know, artistic 20-somethings, you would think it would be a lot of outpouring of feelings and discussion and mind-melding. And they really, it was more of a very quiet companionship, particularly in the beginning. And once they realized that they actually wanted to be together as a couple, uh, one of the things, and because her career was uh, becoming more and more successful, and she was in the public eye more, Charles wanted her to get a proper wardrobe, and this actually caused a fight between them. She had been largely making her own clothes at the time, but she was not an especially good seamstress. And so it it showed that they were homemade. And so he wanted her to visit this dressmaker that he knew of that was clearly out of her price range. Uh, Elsa still felt like she should be paying her own way in life, but he was insistent about it. 
And in her account, she says, Charles finally had to pay and resented my resentment about it. We never did quite recover from this financial tennis match about my wardrobe, nor have I yet recovered from his pressure that I follow his taste. His ideas and tastes were very good, nevertheless, and no one could resist his enormous enjoyment of a few hours at the dressmaker's. Uh, so, and she wrote about this in the 80s, so decades later, she was still kind of angry about sort of being put in this position where she felt like she had to depend on a man for something that she needed. I just think it's very interesting that she writes about this. So much later. Almost 60 years later, she was still kind of fuming about it on some level. So they talked about marriage. Charles wanted it, but uh, Elsa didn't really care. And they were teetering on the brink of respectability. Uh, but at about this time, Elsa became pregnant, though they chose to terminate the pregnancy. And then after this, they moved into a flat together. And then after that, they then decided to get married. Yeah, she talks about a little bit this period in their lives where um, people treated them as though they were respectable. And they even would sometimes check into hotels as the Lawtons. And people sometimes thought they were already married. Uh, and how they kind of felt like they were living a lie. And the pregnancy termination made them feel like we'd look respectable to people, but we know that we're really not, and it's all just a big fib. And that probably played into their decision to actually marry. Uh, and Lanchester describes their wedding day as a French farce, because both actors were popular enough at this point that their romance had been covered in the press. Uh, and though they had arranged to get married on a day that the registry office was normally closed so that they could avoid attention... When they uh, were getting ready to leave, their street was so crowded with journalists that they actually had to, like, try laugh-in grade kind of juggling of multiple taxis. They tried to go out at different times uh, separately and then at the same time, but in separate taxis. And eventually they shook off enough of the crowd that they were able to make their way to the ceremony. Uh, and they did make it to the registry, and they were married, and that was on February 10th of 1929. Uh, Lawton's mother and his brother went on their honeymoon in Switzerland with them, which was very odd. Um, and eventually, though, Lawton and Lanchester uh, moved on to Italy for a second stage of their honeymoon without additional family members. But apparently there was a good bit of teasing in their social circle of, like, you took your family on your honeymoon with you? <laughs> Two years into their marriage... Lawton was forced, due to a slightly confusing interaction with police, to tell Elsa that he was, in his words, homosexual partly. Uh, her initial reaction to this was that that was fine with her, but the, the deception was pretty upsetting. She didn't have so she didn't have a problem with his sexual orientation, just with the fact that he'd been keeping it from her. She claimed to have no indication prior to this that he had any interest in men, and she hinted that she attributed this seemingly sudden change to a midlife crisis. Uh, she wrote it was his change of life. Yeah. Uh, the, um, the crazy police interaction, to give a little more flesh to that... They're, the police stopped Lawton. They had a, a young man in custody, and they thought he was trying to possibly extort money from Lawton. Uh, and it turned out it had been someone he had been sexually involved with. And there was a court case uh, over the young man, and it, they had been concerned because they were being covered in the press. Uh, and somehow some money had changed hands between Lawton and this gentleman, and But the press and the judge in the matter handled it all very kindly, and I think they 
basically wrote it off as saying that Lawton was, quote, he had performed misguided generosity in giving this person money. It was a very weird sort of, you know, very um, polite and proper handling of kind of a subject that I think none of the people involved at the time were really ready to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's, I didn't want to gloss over it uh, completely and not mention kind of what it was, but it is a very hazy, weird account. Yeah. Like what actually went down. Uh, uh, that actually surprises me for a number of reasons. <laughs> Uh, given the treatment of other gay people in uh, in Britain at the time. Yeah, and in entertainment. And I think part of it is that Lawton was this sort of, you know, one, he was highly regarded as an actor and as an artist. And two, he had this sort of sweet, bumbling way about him in some ways. And I think part of it is just that people didn't believe any of this could be the case. You know, it was kind of one of those, maybe, but it's hard for me to believe that this man would be involved in anything untoward. And so I think that was part of why they kind of got a very kind and gentle treatment in the whole thing. So their marriage, though, continued, uh, even though it had problem, problems even aside from Lawton's indiscretions. And Charles would uh, allegedly sometimes bully Elsa if he was unhappy in his work. Uh, and she felt that when her career was thriving, that he would become jealous and would kind of be a little bit mean to her. The two of them moved to Hollywood not long after Lawton's play Payment Deferred closed, and he was signed to a picture alongside Gary Cooper and Tallulah Bankhead called The Devil in the Deep. They arrived in California before the movie's script was ready, so uh, he was loaned to James Whale's project The Old Dark House. And as Lawton's Hollywood career continued, Lanchester's acting career really sputtered. She wasn't working at the time, and it was making her a little bit crazy. Uh, And she eventually went back home to London. And the years uh, following this were really filled with a lot of back-and-forth travel. They were both working and acting uh, in both film and theater, and they would just go back to London, go back to California. It was a very sort of transient life they were living. Uh, and in the early 1930s, MGM offered Lanchester a contract, uh, and it kicked off a very busy decade for her. And of course, smack dab in the middle of that decade was the role that made her an icon, which was the bride. And now we will get into the bride of Frankenstein. Right. D- during a stint in London, in which she really missed Charles, and she felt overwhelmed at taking care of both their flat in the city and their country home, Elsa was offered the role of the Bride of Frankenstein by the director himself. He had danced the tango at the Cave of Harmony back in the day, and he and uh, Elsa had remained friends throughout the years. Yeah, and James Whale, who directed um, Bride of Frankenstein and Frankenstein, had also, you may recall, been working with Lawton on another picture Mm -hmm. uh, in the early 30s. And Wales' first Frankenstein picture had really made Boris Karloff a household name. So getting to work on the follow-up was exciting for Elsa. But she was also really excited that the script actually had two parts for her. The bride, of course, but at the beginning of the picture, she also plays Mary Shelley. Uh, And she describes that character as, quote, dressed extremely elegantly, sweeter than sugar. In some screenings, the early part of the film is cut, so not everybody who's ever seen it has been treated to Elsa's Mary Shelley performance. The idea that Whale was working with was that there must be something dark inside such a woman to make her be able to come up with a story like Frankenstein. So he wanted the same actress to appear both as the seemingly delicate Shelley and the seemingly monstrous bride. 
And while the role made her famous, if you watch the movie, she really doesn't have all that much screen time in it. Uh, all the same, the time that she did spend on set was grueling by all accounts, uh, at least the segments where she was filming as the bride. The Mary Shelley prologue only took a few days to film. And Elsa was just charmed by the costume that she wore for this segment. And it had this really intricate, hand-worked, and sequined embroidery. It was a long and white dress, but uh, it had a delicate, refined hint at the look that the bride would have later on in the film. Yeah, and its uh, I remember reading a, um, a film history account that described the bride as being evocative of both a burial shroud and a wedding night nightgown. Just something I had not thought about that much until I read that, uh, and I just loved it. Uh, so filming The Monster's Bride took ten a week to ten days to film, according to Lanchester's recollection. Uh, and it was a really uncomfortable affair for many, many reasons. Her hair was built up over this horsehair and wire cage that was anchored onto four narrow braid tracks tight around her head. Yeah, so similar to the way hair extensions are put in, these braided tracks were run along the top of her scalp, and then they would sew the cage into that for the day and uh, comb her hair up around it and then add those two white streaks. Those were hair pieces. Uh, her makeup would take three to four hours to do each day. And the makeup artist, Jack Pierce, who uh, was an interesting character himself, would work in silence. He would be slowly layering on putty and pigment, and he was intolerant of interruption or chatter. She wasn't allowed to speak to him first. Like, he, if he said good morning to her, she could say it back. But if he didn't greet her, she just had to sit in the chair and get the makeup applied. <laughs> and he wore a lab coat the whole time. He was almost like his own Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> A studio nurse would wind Elsa into her bandages every day, and she drank as little fluid as possible while shooting because going to the bathroom was just such an ordeal with all these bandages on. Yeah. She also mentions in her book that she and Boris Karloff didn't like to go to the commissary during meal breaks because they didn't like being stared at because they both looked so completely bizarre in their costumes that Karloff, who didn't like to miss meals, apparently would wear like a cheesecloth veil and go down to the commissary and like lift the veil to pop food in. That seems weirder than showing up in your makeup. Yes. Yeah, but when you think about what that makeup looked like, and it was in the 1930s when backlots were probably more filled with people trying to look pretty and cute. Uh, you could see where it would be weird, but the shroud does, like having a, a shroudy cheesecloth veil while you eat your meals does seem odd as well. I don't know. I think there's no winning in that point. No. <laughs> in the shot where the bandages come off from her eyes and they pop open as she looks around, she wasn't supposed to blink. So she'd have to open her, her eyes as wide as she possibly could and then keep them open which really caused her a lot of pain as the day wore on. Yeah, each day of shooting, by the end of it, she was really in a lot of pain. Uh, And then all the screaming that she did throughout, uh, because it's pretty much what she does as the bride, really took such a toll on her throat that she was left unable to speak for several days after the shoot. And she was even prescribed codeine for the pain because it had really ravaged her throat quite badly. So all of these tribulations aside... Uh, as often happens with really grueling uh, movie set stories, she spoke very fondly of her time on the set with Whale. And for those two weeks of filming, she became just a really indelible part of the cinema's history. 
Yeah, and as an aside, I love when people first see Bride of Frankenstein and they have that charming revelation that it's actually somewhat of a comedy. I don't know if you've ever sat through it in a theater, but you have these moments. There's a few characters, particularly at the beginning, that are played very broadly and kind of for laughs. And I, it's fun to kind of look around and watch people go, I thought I was seeing a classic horror film. Kind of. And they're like, but it, it's funny. The horror comedy. There's there's funny in it. Yeah. Uh, I really love that film. It's so beautiful and so fun to watch. And Right. I love the um, the play of contrasts. Uh, it's just gorgeous. But yeah. rather than wax rhapsodic about how much I love The Bride of Frankenstein... Shall we get back to Elsa now? Of course. So she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress Oscars twice in her career. The first was in 1949 for her role in Come to the Stable, and then again in 1957 for Witness for the Prosecution, which was her last picture with her husband. Yeah, uh, she and Charles Lawton did a lot of projects together. She tried to keep her career separate from his, but there were times when it would work out where they wanted to be together, uh, you know, because they really did care very deeply about each other, even though they had had this revelation early on in their marriage that he was uh, gay, they still really seemed to build this life together and were very devoted to one another. So sometimes they would try to work on the same projects. And throughout this time, Elsa would continue to sing and dance in cabaret-style shows. She really never lost her love of performing live theater. And she would sometimes tour in tandem with Charles. He did a couple of book tours, and she would try to set up cabaret tours that would follow the same uh, path as him. They became American citizens in 1950 after having gotten lots of criticism back home for staying in the United States during World War II. According to Elsa, Charles would often tell her, I was in the First World War, in the trenches, bayoneting men and getting gassed. I think once in a life is enough. Yeah, I could see not wanting to do that uh, again. Uh, The pair stayed married. As I said, they were really quite devoted to each other until Charles died in December of 1962. And he had had a really prolonged battle with cancer. His uh, lengthy treatments had really eaten away at the couple's finances. So uh, when he died, it wasn't like she was left with a lot of money. She had a, a small allowance that they had arranged after a lot of legal sorting of his assets. Uh, and there was a, a pretty significant art collection that had to be dealt with. Uh, but she needed to fiscally or uh, support her ailing mother, who was back in London, and she needed to supplement her income. So she started working in television series. Uh, and at that point, the one that she was working on was the John Forsyth show. And she would send funds to her mother, Biddy, regularly. And she really often had throughout her life. Sadly, one of her cousins thought that she had just abandoned her mother for Hollywood and just wrote scathing letters accusing her of negligence. Yeah, she... Uh, Prince, she reprints those letters in her autobiography, and they really are just super mean, really accusing her of basically being of extremely shallow and low character and that she's just been, you know, completely entranced by Hollywood and and that clearly all she cares about is being famous and important and she doesn't have any regard for family and that it's basically like you are a horrible person. You're so horrible and shallow. I hate you. And she just keeps getting these letters. <laughs> They're awful. But eventually, four years after Charles died, Biddy also passed away. Uh, and it's interesting because she did financially support her mother a great deal. But Elsa was quite clear in all of her writings that she never really liked her mother, though she kept trying to. 
and it, she's, you know, pretty self-reflective about it and is like, I, I recognize that many people say we're a lot of like, and that may be a significant part of why we never really had a meeting of the minds. Uh, and her father had actually died in the 1940s, but they weren't terribly close and it wasn't something she really dwelled upon. Um, I don't think she mentions it in her book until after Biddy dies, where she's like, oh yeah, Seamus had already died like 20 years before that. And it's pretty glossy. So even though she had this ongoing relationship with her parents in a very interesting childhood and early adulthood where she was still with them, she does seem to have had some emotional separation from them. Like she never, she didn't maintain a closeness with her family. Her career continued through the 80s and primarily involved appearances on TV and a lot of roles in Disney films. She played Katie Nana in the opening scenes of Mary Poppins. Yeah, which a lot of people don't recognize her. Uh, she's much older at that point, and she is, for anyone who has only vague recollection of that film, she is the nanny at the very beginning who loses the children and because the children ran away from her in the park, and she's quitting her job. The big suffragette song number at the beginning. So that was really like the latter part of her career. Those those last two decades were spent mostly doing small parts on television um, and in these Disney films. Uh, but then as she was getting older, of course, uh, she suffered two strokes in 1983 and 1984. And uh, in 1986, she contracted bronchial pneumonia and she died at the end of that year on December 26th. And she was 84 at the time. She wrote of her life. It was felicitous to be born in 1902. Anyone born around that time hit a jackpot era. That is, if they lived through the two wars. Science, medicine, and the arts in this century tumbled over each other at such speed that our human span of threescore years and ten seems more like living 200 years. Yeah, she was pretty uh, kind of turned on by the development of, of culture and science and how quickly she was watching technology develop and industry change. Uh, when it came to talking about the bride later in her life, Lanchester once wrote that the quickest way to make her shut up was to ask her about the bride of Frankenstein, because she was a very talkative and loquacious woman. And in her 1983 book, she says, to this day, nine out of ten photographs I get in the mail for autographing are of the bride. I'm grateful for the bride of Frankenstein. It became a sort of trademark for me. But such trademarks can cause typecasting and boomerang for some actors. Such actors work all the time. Some like it, some grumble. Perhaps even more grateful for her turn in Frankenstein's sequel are fans of horror and classic cinema. There's this just instantly recognizable image of the bride, and that has been all over uh, all kinds of memorabilia. It's been made into dolls. This year, it's part of a marketing campaign for Ma- for MAC Cosmetics based around a line of products develops with, developed with effects artist Rick Baker. And l- like that clip of her screaming uh-huh. is just everywhere. It is. It's It shows up in all kinds of pop culture references. It's been mimetized. Uh, it'll show up in your Facebook feed periodically. Uh, it really is quite a... Uh, uh, and iconic to the point that people who have never, ever seen that movie, and a lot of people haven't, uh, because it is quite old and you don't always get to screenings, but it's, uh, everybody knows that it's The Bride of Frankenstein without, I, I can't think of anybody who's ever seen it and gone, what's that? Um, <laughs> it's just instantly knowable. Uh, I remember wanting to dress as her for Halloween one time when I was a child. Uh-huh. 
And I can't remember if I actually got to do it or not. Like, I remember my mom being like, that hair is The not hair is always what holds people back. Because I have, tricky. like, I've always had extremely fine hair. Yeah. And my mom was like, that is not ever going to take on your head. Well, and wigs are even tricky, you know. I don't know if they The had, wigs don't always work right. I don't know if they had Bride of Frankenstein wigs for seven-year-olds. For, they might. In the early 80s. <laughs> I guess that was... Yeah, early 80s. They might. Uh, there is also a fan-driven effort underway at the moment to get the Motion Picture and Television Fund, which is the MPTF, to reprint Elsa's autobiography. Um, if you're interested in investigating that cause or adding your voice to it, you can Google Reprint Elsa and you'll get to all the pertinent sites and information. That effort is also on Facebook at facebook.com slash reprint Elsa. And for me, it was one of those things that when I found out that people were trying to get it reprinted, I was... In, in a minute, because she really is, uh, so fun to read. Uh, even though, and she knew so many interesting people throughout her life, and she recalls with a great deal of clarity some of these really fascinating interactions. Uh, it, it's just a fun read. Even if you weren't interested in Elsa Lanchester, I think her wit, uh, makes the story of her life very fun and, and kind of enjoyable. Uh, it is dense though. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of book. I mean, it's not like a quick, fluffy read. There's a lot of interesting information there. Do you have some listener mail for us? I do, indeed. And uh, I did not check with this listener on pronunciation. I don't know if his name is Josiah or Josiah, because I know people that have done it both ways. And he says, first off, let me say I love the show. Uh, I had a decent amount of physics in college, and I thought I may be able to shed some light on the Vixen radar system uh, and how it worked. He's referring to the Luis Alvarez podcast. The basic principle is that, in general, the closer you are to a radio wave transmission, the stronger the signal you will receive. So, as an airplane approached a U-boat, each successive transmission of radio waves, a ping, if you will, would be stronger. Alvarez and company brilliantly designed a system that, after initially detecting a submarine, would reduce the power of each successive ping by a certain ratio. So while the plane was actually getting closer and closer, the strength of the radar transmission would actually get weaker, making it appear as though uh, it's going away from the target boat. The mathematical complications arise from the fact that the intensity of a wave is inversely proportional to the square of its radius. I did not fact check that. I'm just trusting you. (laughs) Um, In a simple example, ignoring some of the more complicated behavior of waves, if you half the distance between yourself and the target, reducing your radio power to one quarter of its original strength will make you appear stationary. The signal reaching the target will be the same strength even though you are much closer. Taking this a step further, have the distance and reduce ratio power by an eighth, and you will, in effect, appear to be twice as far away. A slightly better explanation, he says, would involve a whiteboard, but maybe this will help a little. Uh, it does. It makes sense, mathematically. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was hampered a little bit in doing some of the research for that episode, because a lot of what I was reading was definitely written for other physicists. Yeah. And uh, when I started trying to look up how to better explain multiple things in the episode. <laughs> there were there were some things that I was able to come up with like a layperson's explanation for pretty quickly and then others where I just kept finding densely technical <laughs> explanations that were beyond my ability to understand. So I am super happy that we got a listener's thoughts on With that. a really good way to explain it. Uh, yeah, because I did not have time to read an entire manual on radar. Well, and I know... Uh, I and probably many other people, I really love science, but I do get 
kind of wadded up and a little confused sometimes by the mathematics involved and uh, some of the more esoteric concepts. I have to really kind of fight my way in to get a handle on them. So it's nice when it's laid out so nicely in yeah. uh, normal people speak. So if uh, you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcastsatdiscovery.com. Or you can visit us on facebook.com slash historyclassstuff. Uh, we're on Twitter at Missed in History. You can also find us on Pinterest, pinning away all the things. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can go to our website and type in Frankenstein in the search bar, and you will get a number of different things, including how Frankenstein's monster works and... Uh, Another one called a quiz called How Well Do You Know Frankenstein's Monster? Both very, very fun. The How Frankenstein's Monster Works was written by uh, Robert Lamb, who is on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And it's a really cool examination of literally how a reanimated human that has been pieced together could scientifically work. Uh, There's really fun stuff in it, so I highly recommend it. If you'd like to learn more about that or anything else you can think of, you should do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.